Stanford University. This is Anne Firth Murray, founding president of the Global Fund for Women and currently teaching on women's health and human rights at Stanford. Today I'm speaking over the phone with Abigail Disney about her upcoming PBS series on women, war, and peace. Abby not only has a connection with Stanford, but also served on the board of the Global Fund for Women. Her five-part series focuses on how war affects women. It was filmed in Liberia, Colombia, Afghanistan, and Bosnia. Greetings, Abby. We'll get to the films, but first I wanted to ask about your time at Stanford. Let's see, it was so long ago in a galaxy far away, but it was, I think, 1982, when I, 83, when I started there. I only did one year, but, um, God, it was like the promised land. But everything at Stanford was so pristine, and the sun was always shining, and it was Oh, it was such a wonderful year. I loved my year there so much. I just, and it, and it really cemented for me that this was what I needed to do with my life. Was study, think, talk, you know, be about ideas. We'll stick with Stanford a little more here and slowly work into the films. Was there any seed of that time here at Stanford that is still with you now in these projects? Intellectually, some seeds were planted for me around gender. Uh, at Stanford, and um, I, I'm a little bit of a contrarian, so gender was sort of um, in at the time, um, and so everybody was looking at women and talking about women, and that made me really interested in looking at men and thinking about men. I thought it was interesting to have a look at, at, at men as a woman. Um, and, and understand the way they talk about themselves to each other. Um, so that was sort of the beginning. I wrote, ultimately, my dissertation at Columbia was about war novels. Um, and the reason I landed there, ultimately, was because they were kind of like a locker room conversation. They are a conversation by, for, and about men, and the project of being a man and making meaning as a man, um, with the presumption that nobody, nobody female is listening. The gender seed definitely got planted at Stanford. So the event you're coming to here at Stanford on October 12th is going to be sponsored by four groups, the Clayman Institute, Ethics and Society, the Center for Philanthropy and Civil Society, and the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Let's move into a discussion of the films. The whole point of the series is the experience of women. How and why do women experience war differently? You know, because you know, having read and written so extensively about the narrative of war, um, and in fact, actually, if you think about, you know, from Homer through Mailer, um, it's, it's a very interesting thing that it's a narrative that has shifted very little over the thousands of years. And for the most part, women are absent these landscapes. You know, they don't exist on these landscapes except, you know, sort of in the distance watching combat as an admirer, an observer, as a potential reward sexually, um, as the mother sending them off, um, as a prostitute or a nurse. Those are, those are pretty much the roles that women are given in the, in the classic war narrative. Yet the language implies women, you know, in the sense that, you know, if you're fighting house to house, where are the, where are the people from the houses? You know, if you're, if, if you're raping and pillaging your way across Europe, <laughs> Some women are implied there. It just intrigued me that um, we had written them out of the landscape, and it didn't stand to reason that they were that absent. 
So that is really the heart and soul of why we're doing it is like, what if we restored them to the landscape? And beyond that, you know, if you think about the Iliad, you know, through um, Saving Private Ryan, you know, every narrative has a central eye from, you know, an eyeball, <laughs> you know, through which all this narrative is filtered. And the eyeball in the war narrative has never not been male. It has always been like you sewed a camera into John Wayne's Green Beret, right? And so what would happen were you to sew the camera into a sari or a headscarf or someone, you know, a woman? How would it look different? And, and how would the vocabulary change, the ethics change? How would the cost-benefit analysis look? What, you know, what shifts? Because it's a small thing to shift the central eye, but it can have radical consequences. And that's essentially why I've taken this on. Okay, Abby, let me jump back to your image of the eyes in the beret. Can you sew that eye in and give us a couple of scenes from the films that really stand out for you? I mean, you know, the, sh the shift is taking women um, from being objects to being subjects, right? So if you imagine a classic image of a woman by the side of the road with flies in her eyes, right, who's just been raped, that's an object, right? That is an object that is waiting to be acted upon uh, in some way, either saved or rescued or further victimized or placed into a tent or a system or a program or left to die, one of those things. Um, you know, if, if she's a subject, um, she, she has a long history. She grew up somewhere. She understands certain things. Maybe she was raped and that moment was horrible, but she had a, a history before and after the rape and she had a personality before and after that rape. She had understanding about things. Um, she has a, a family system potentially that she can return to. There are things that she knows. She knows how to feed herself. She knows how to take care of her children. Um, so if she turns back into a subject, um, the, the nature of her lying by the side of the road with flies in her eyes is an entirely different thing. Not only because there's now so much greater emotional impact. The emotional impact of an object is, is small and quick and kind of cheap. Um, the, the, the emotional impact of the subject is empathy. And that's a deeper and more um, rich engagement. Um, so if we consider her to, yes, be a rape victim, but a rape victim who played the piano and had four children and was a hilarious actor and, you know, all these other things were happening for her, then, then, she's, then we engage with her in an entirely different way. So that's just as an audience. In, in the practical sense, um, in, in terms of, for instance, the way the international community engages with people around the world, you know, every refugee camp forms before the international community gets there, right? And before the international community gets there, there's a government in exile in that camp that forms totally naturally. Now, these populations, I, I want to drive out of our vocabulary this women and children thing, because when you think about what it does, it kind of reduces women to being like children. There are these um, needy people who are less than and less able than. But actually, they're women and the children, elders, disabled, sick, tired, you know, incapacitated, who rely on these women for their well-being. If you think of it that way, wow, <laughs> suddenly we're talking about a whole different thing, right? So the government in exile in that refugee camp 
is, is comprised mostly of women who have figured out where the water is, how to find food, where people will sleep, what to do with the children when they're bored, um, you know, how, how to organize the firework situation and so forth. Um, and so if we as the international community show up um, without a recognition of the um, government in exile that exists there, we have a tendency to drive in our trucks right over the top of, and, and very often in many cases destroy, that burgeoning infrastructure, that baby, baby infrastructure. But if we go into that camp with the idea that I should, my first job as I get here is to find a government in exile and talk to them about how to do this, then, I, then I'm doing it very differently and potentially in a way that's much more enabling and empowering of the people there. So that's, that's an inherent, that gives you a sense of the difference. And the way that plays out, particularly around peace and peace building, is incredibly important. Because in Liberia, you know, it's amazing to me. The reason we made the film about Liberia was I went to Liberia, I heard the story, I had never heard it before, and I came home angry. You know, how did I not already know that story? You know, and I, and I, you know, we went back and we started doing the research. According to Lema, the woman in the film, the BBC was there, the Sky News was there, CNN was there. So, of course, the first thing we did was go look for the archival footage. There wasn't a shred of archival footage, not one inch of footage from these huge media outlets of a group of women taking the peace talks hostage and threatening to strip naked when security comes to arrest them. Can you imagine that nobody there saw this as relevant or significant enough? So there's this tendency to look right through women because they don't look like presidents and these particular women, they don't have Ivy League educations, they haven't worked in the international community, they don't speak the language, and worst of all, worst of all, they're saying emotional things, right? Their discourse they're saying, stop killing my children. And you know, that's not very collegial. In a peace talk, we all have an informal agreement. You know, nobody goes emotional. Like, that's just not, that's not how, it's unsophisticated, it's not collegial, you just don't do it. And that they stood their ground and, and insisted on the, um, the primacy of the moral discourse made them um, irrelevant, really. Um, it took them out of contention for authority. And um, so that was really, to me, the important thing about making these films was, you know, so much about the way we understand the world depends on how we decide to frame things. And I know that if you shoot in HD and you have really great light and sound and high quality, you make a good film with like scored music and the whole thing, and you put it on a 35 millimeter projector on a screen, I swear to God, I could tell you the sky is purple and you would believe me, right? Because most Americans buy it. And I thought, why not use this thing that has been used for so many years to denigrate women and make them less authoritative? Why not just use it to do the opposite, to assert as historical this thing that had been defined out of mattering, you know, simply by the gender of the people who did it? In a documentary, often the goal is to make something that is hidden or invisible visible. So, in making your films, weren't there still people who were interested in keeping these stories hidden? In fact, actually, Liberians who you know had moved on and elected a new president and were really moving on with democracy. So, it was it was a very different moment in Liberia when I got there than it was when this all this happened. Um, Liberians were really proud of this story. 
And it was something that was really well known in the countryside. In fact, we have an interview with some of the ex-combatants who had been the boy soldiers who were like, no, we love those women. We would still do anything for them. So there was real pride that something very profound had happened. Um, and, and so I think there was some gratitude that we wanted to, that we wanted to cover it. There were, there were the elements there of people who still were loyal to Charles Taylor that didn't want it told or whatever. We never were menaced or threatened in any way. But we were certainly listened to from the table next to us kind of thing. And <laughs> in, in it's one of those, um, what is it, the ugly American? You know how there's the, always the hotel where the spies from all sides are sitting next to each other having... <laughs> it, it was kind of like that at the Hotel of Liberia. It was basically people from the UN and, and diamond um, smugglers, kind of cheek by jowl at the bar. And so we definitely knew we were being heard and that people had eyes on us. Um, but I think, you know, it's the interesting thing about women's activism is that um, one of its strengths is the perception that it's not effective um, because I think people underestimate it. The bad guys have a way of underestimating it a lot, which is a good thing. <laughs> Can you recall some stories from these places, images that are burned into your mind? Okay, so I'm going to give you... The, the true, true story, which is I didn't get to Afghanistan or Colombia. I wish I had. Um, I will tell you in terms of Afghanistan and Colombia, you know, part of the thesis of, of the whole thing is that, um, you know, you ask combatants about war and they tend to give you, um, oh, landscape and weapons and terrain and nuances. And, you know, they're all different. They're snowflakes. They're also complicated wars. And then if you talk to the women, they just kind of describe the same thing, no matter where they are, no matter what the culture is. And they use this very strikingly similar vocabulary. And I will never forget, you know, you make a series of films like this is an enormous leap of faith. You know, you go out on a very long limb and ask people for huge amounts of money and promise things and whatever. But in your heart of hearts, until it all comes together, it's really scary. <laughs> And sitting in the edit room and seeing a woman in Afghanistan describe her experience as a refugee in exactly the same words as a woman from Colombia, just really, I cried. Because to see it come to life, what I knew was there in my heart and had really, you know, all of us had stuck our necks out for. Um, and, and just knowing that the power of that you know, because they say the devil's in the details, and that can mean a bunch of things. To me, I've decided it means this whole other thing, which is that the details are sometimes a way of not paying attention to what you're really doing, especially in war. <laughs> you know, because what you're really doing is shooting each other. <laughs> and there are a hundred million ways that people help themselves go to sleep at night with that fact. And the details are one of them. And uh, the women have a way of, of stripping the details out and reminding everybody. There was a, a, an off-camera interview we did with one of the warlords in Liberia who said, um, I said, how is it one woman stripping naked could possibly, you know, create this mayhem? And he said, because there wasn't one woman, in, one man in that room, no matter what he'd done in the war, who didn't ask himself, what have I done to get us to this place? So that, to me, is, is the power of what we're doing. Bosnia, um, I've been back and forth to Bosnia a bunch of times, and it really is a place that has all of my heart, especially Sarajevo, which is this, like, it's just, it's the most artistic city. It's like Paris. Everybody's a poet or a painter or a writer or 
And if you can imagine Paris surrounded on all sides by hills with people shooting down into it for years and people starving to death and, you know, the senselessness of it um, and still holding together as a city. It's the most extraordinary place you will ever, ever go. And, uh, you know, one of the women that to me just knocks my socks off every time I go is a woman who was a history teacher in Zenitsa. And um, she's just a high school history teacher. I mean, and you know, in the world we live in, if you're 50 something years old and you're a high school history teacher, you might as well be invisible. You might as well be painted with invisible paint. <laughs> Nobody sees you, you don't matter at all. And the refugees from, from the Bosnian East started coming in to Zenica and, you know, just to be helpful, she would start to settle them and they would tell her stories. And, she started recognizing that these stories had striking similarities, particularly around orchestrated rapes and rape camps. And she said to herself, this is what history looks like. I've been teaching history all my life, but this is what it looks like. I need to document this. And she sat down and she started hand-taking the, the stories of every single woman that came out of those camps. She took 10,000 documents down. And when she met Simon Wiesenthal, he said to her, I've never seen better documentation of war crimes in my life. I've been doing this all my life, and you have better evidence than I ever had. You use this phrase that's intriguing, the second front. Can you build us an image and a description of the second front? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because we have this image of the front, you know, and the image of the front is, you know, it's like a football field, right? <laughs> it's clearly delineated sidelines. It's got a front and a back. Everybody recognizes who the bad guy is. They're wearing different uniforms. Um, and, and then there's what's really true, <laughs> you know, which is that every day people get out of bed and they need to pee and they need to have some water and breakfast and the kid needs to be educated and shaped and whatever. And that's the second front. Um, that's the fight of women's lives, the fight to make life continue. You know, and, and, and not only that, to find a way even, God help us, to thrive as a family and, and as a community. And, and it's really, a, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the whole thing that Anne Rice and um, Richard said about how Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. That's backwards and in heels, man. That is, you know, the mortar fire going overhead and... You know, I mean, they're doing everything, they're doing all the work, you know, of sustaining communities um, while enduring the trauma of losing loved ones, the worry of, of, of watching their sons go off and become not just victims, but also monsters in some cases. I mean, that, we can't underestimate that. The, I remember once I, I decided in solidarity with the Darfur people to do a fast for Darfur where I just eat refugee rations for 30 days. I last 36 hours. I'm not the type. <laughs> I can't do that thing. But, but I remember thinking to myself, this is something I never thought about. The, I, I'm about teaching my children the things that I know and that I, that I learned from my, my parents. And can you imagine not being able to teach your children how to cook? The things, you don't have the spices you knew and the everything starts with an onion kind of lore and the, you know, what kind of oil do you use? You don't have control. I mean, there, there's so many ways in which the, the refugee life in particular is a violation of everything a family is about and for. 
um, this is almost hard to conceive. Um, and, and, and if we not conceive it, you know, how much will we tolerate it? So we need to go back and retrace what happens because, gosh, so much of this is happening in our names in many cases. And if not in our names, then certainly without much of a protest from us. Um, and, uh, I mean, I go around the country and talk about war all the time, and you would never know this is a country of war by the way people ask questions. So there really has to be a sort of restoration of awareness about you know, what exactly this project entails. Or You mentioned the military people in Liberia. Are you talking to other men in other countries in military positions? And what are they saying to you? What do men think about your films? Well, that's something really interesting that I'm only recently getting, um, getting um, aware of. Uh, interestingly, okay, so I'm, I, uh, I gave my sort of patter about men and masculinity and war and the aesthetics of violence and the mythology of heroism and all the rest of that. And um, this was at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. So there were like, lots of Washington types there, including a lot of people in uniform. And on my way out, I get stopped by this woman. She's tiny. She's maybe 10, 20 years older than I am. Um, I mean, tiny, tiny woman, but she's like got more medals on her. I mean, it's ridiculous. I have no idea who she is. And she's crying. And she hands me a medal. She says to me, don't ever stop saying what you're saying. What you're saying is so important. And I just want you to know that you need to keep doing it. And three months later, she turns out to have been a rear admiral and the highest ranking woman in the U.S. Navy, 35 years in. She contacted me three months later and said, we're going to repurpose the um, content in your films and use them in the high-tech simulators in the U.S. Navy to train our guys who are going into peacekeeping operations around the world in gender. Um, so what I'm discovering is that there are people in uniform in our military who understand this better than any civilian I've ever met that we're never going to face the Battle of the Bulge again. And we've built a military around an idea of the Battle of the Bulge. Um, but all we have going forward in the future in war is going to be counterinsurgencies and asymmetrical conflicts and, and infrastate conflicts and non-state actors and non-state proxies. And you're in, if you're the biggest, most powerful military on Earth, even when you win those, you lose them. You know, the reality is there's no winning those wars. And so the answer to an insurgency or not an asymmetrical conflict is not to go back to the drawing board for a bigger and better hammer. The answer is resolution of conflict, resolving of, of issues, building sustainable peace, and the heart and soul of that is women. And that is what Wendy Carpenter says and that's why she's building this program around training Navy people, which she hopes to expand out into the other branches of the military and maybe into the UN too. Um, and I have heard that exact statement from men and women in uniform, high-ranking people across the military system. Our military has been radically altered by the last 10 years, um, and it's almost unrecognizable from the one that we started, we sent into Afghanistan. They've learned so much from this, and I don't think they will ever quite be the same institution. Now, this isn't a spread across the entire system, and it may not even be a critical mass, 
Um, but there's certainly a very significant element in our military that is beginning to understand the dynamics of peace and peace building and the importance of it going forward. We're getting close to the end, and I have a couple more questions uh, that I'd like to raise. First, uh, if you have any more examples of women's experiences, I'd like to hear them. What can be changed for women in war and refugee camps? What are you hoping to do in the future, particularly in terms of film? And how will you know if you've succeeded with these films? Yeah. Oh, that, that's easy. <laughs> At one point, one of our characters says, peace is a process. It's not an event. You know, it has, it has sparked in me this notion of, um, and it's also not a corner table or a quiet place in your house. It's not outside of everything. It's at the middle. It's at the center. And, you know, it's something you fight for. It's something you create every day in your world. It's a thousand choices you make as an individual person from picking up litter to helping an old man cross the street to fasting for Darfur or, you know, heading over there and helping the refugees. You know, um, we all can choose to make peace in our worlds to varying levels. And I want people to have a look you know, inside of themselves and say, you know, to what extent am I a peace builder? You know, and, and, and to what extent am I constructing peace in my world? And maybe even ask themselves, you know, what are the two or three things that I could do to create more peace in my world? You know, and I, and I do mean that it's, it's a range. It's, I hate that think local, act global, or whatever it was, think global, act, but they do both. <laughs> it's a both end world, right? So, you know, the old lady across the street and the fast for Darfur, <laughs> you know, and, you know, because we all have the capacity to do so much more than we do. So that's what I hope for is to kind of build a constituency for peace in this country. Peace is not a widely respected word in this country. And, and to get people thinking seriously about the fact that it doesn't rain down on you from the heavens, you make it. Abby, can you drop into some special zone and give me just two or three descriptive images from a scene from the films that particularly live with you? There's, there's this one moment. Um, Francia is this 22, 23-year-old, drugged gorgeous Afro-Colombian woman who is fighting to make sure that her um, village doesn't get thrown off its land. Um, because she knows just how horrible that refugee life is. And um, she's, she is just unstoppable and fearless. You know, she really is amazing. And uh, there's a meeting with the government officials at one point, and they're just, the village is getting totally stonewalled in the most, like, passport office kind of way. You know, that kind of, like, reprehensible bureaucrat crap. And she strides up to the front of the auto frame and picks up a microphone. And she said, here, let me make this simple for you. You will have to drag us out of here dead because we're not leaving our village. And she puts the mic down. And applause erupts. People go wild. But I just thought to myself, this is a woman who's getting death threats every day. When she says that, it's not hyperbole. And pretty much in the next scene, she turns around and looks at the camera dead on and says, I'm going to die in this battle. I don't know when, I don't know how. I'm going to die in this battle. It's pretty powerful stuff, man. You know, I follow her anywhere. <laughs> She's awesome. 
Amazing. Thank you so much, Abby. And again, Abigail Disney will be at Stanford at the CMEX Auditorium, 7 o'clock on October 12th, to talk about her film series on women, war, and peace. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.